it was a perfect time for me to make the decision either stay in the US or do what I've always dreamt of which is going back to the homeland and doing some work business or work with the community there and welcome to episode 69 of the Syrian podcast. My name is Jesse and I'm your newest co-host from Germany. Like other co-hosts, I do a lot of traveling and will be bringing you stories from all around the world. Today I'm taking you on a trip to the homeland Syria where I just spent a couple of months. Imagine walking down the street hearing the chatter of your mother tongue Surai grabbing a few things from the grocery store called Shamomar, which is named after one of the iconic Syriac songs of this region. You're working in an office with your Syrian friends that you also meet at church on Sunday. You listen to Syriac, you talk Syriac, you shop in Syriac, and you eat a Syrian food in your favorite Syrian restaurant in a neighborhood filled with Syrian homes. This is Qamishli. Volunteering in Qamishli introduced me to a lot of great people from our community. And one of those great people is Akat Sadi, a software engineer who, despite his opportunity to stay in the States, decided to move back to Syria, even with the difficult times of war. He is the president of Bitkanu, an organization that aims to build a foundation to advance the endangered dialects of the Syriac language by creating all types of media products. In this episode, you'll learn more about what drives him to do the special work he does. So strap on your seatbelt because you're coming with me to Syria. Lastly, the Syrian podcast is brought to you by Tony Kalakarakas and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Kalakarakas. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, let's hear about the life of a cat Sadie. Shlomo Akat, welcome to the Serum Podcast. I'm so happy that we can sit down and have a conversation like that because there's so much to talk about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. So Akat, let's just start right there. You were born and raised in Hasake, Syria. Mm -hmm. Then you moved to Qamishli. Yes. What is it about Qamishli that is so special? Say you were a tour guide, what would you show to us in Qamishli? Yeah, um, first, I, I love Qamishli. I love this town. Uh, and what probably what I would show people, I won't show them the, those buildings or the high rises, the wide streets, the sightseeings. Maybe we don't have so many of those. But what we really have is in you know, a really tight community, community that went through a lot Uh, throughout history, throughout time, whether they were together in Turkey back in, you know, in the 1900s and moved Qamishli in northern part of Syria. So it's really 
a community that learned how to survive, a community that learned how to live with the toughest times, harshest times, but always learned to know how to have fun, you know, like having parties all the time, going in the summer to swimming pools. Maybe in Qamishli we had the most number of swimming pools in the whole Syria, in one small town. Um, so it's just, a, you know, really fun people who love who they are uh, and know how to live. Wow, that sounds like a really nice city. Tell me a bit more about Qamishli. What does the name really mean and why is the city so important for the Suryoi? Because I heard throughout time a lot of famous names that were connected to that city. First, the name, literally what it means is Qamish, which is Zalo in Suryoyo. Uh, Zalo means like a bamboo, the bamboo sticks. Hold on. Yeah. Hold on. I have to ask this question. <laughs> And it's probably the most important question in this interview. Sure. Since there is bamboo in mm-hmm. Qamishli, mm-hmm. is there any possibility that there are pandas here? <laughs> um, um, pandas as the animals? I'm yes. not sure. <laughs> <I don't laughs> But pandas as the males? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, we do have people who look like pandas here yeah. for sure. Okay. <laughs> so why is the city so important for the city? <laughs> What it really means, what Qamishli really means, uh, is to me, I look at it as the heart of Suryoi. And the, the reason you see that, we as community, we as people, you see that all those areas, all the villages we had back, in, back then, from Torabdin, Mardin, uh, Diyar Bakr, Hassan Cape, all those areas and all these villages, They came together maybe for the first time living in one city, one uh, town together. So I think that what that is really what made it special. People in Mardin, and my, uh, my dad is originally from, you know, from there, lost its language for over, they estimate, about 500 years. And you notice now after this whole uh, war that happened and after the genocide, Just like Mardin, Diyar Bakr, there is on the other side Tor Abdin and all the villages that preserve the language. You know, they still speak Surait, which is, you know, the spoken uh, Syriac or the spoken Suryoyo. And you see them really mixing up for the first time, living together in a close distance. And reintroduction of the language and brought up a lot of new things. For example, Uh, the singing part, you know, they revived the whole singing uh, and music. Um, we have one interview with Zagai, yeah. the um, daughter of the late Ninos Aho, ah, and she was yeah. actually explaining how they, in the basement in Qamishli, how they wrote songs and yeah. uh, tried not to get seen by the government. Sure. There is, uh, there are many, like many attempts like that in back in in the days, where uh, it wasn't just music. Obviously, the music was part of it. The dances. There is obviously Torabdin area had slightly different dance, and now after the massacre of Simeli in 1933, now we got Easterners from Iraq moving to Khabur area, and that also introduced a new some of our new cultural uh, heritage that wasn't really 
known prior to the moving of Assyrians from to Khabur. So you got a really nice melting pot area where music was revived, a lot of variations of music, dances, food, all got introduced for the first time. Uh, they got revived and they got uh, improved. And, and obviously when you have so many people living in a close area together, carrying so much history and culture and heritage with them, a lot of things happen, like competition. It looks like it becomes like a competition. Who makes the best song? Who who makes the nicest dance? And who writes the best book? Who would teach the best Syriac language? So obviously, uh, that's something that that is what really made I think the area very special. And uh, you you see like the oldest bands, Assyrian bands. You see them from this area. The best and most famous singers and writers and dance groups and even schools were were created around you know after the 30s and 40s and 50s in this area of Qamishli, Hasaki and Gozerto basically. That sounds really interesting. Um, tell me a little bit about your upbringing Akat. In the 90s your father was the first Assyrian parliament member in Syria that wasn't part of the Ba'ath party and for the listeners Ba'ath is the main party that is actually making the government, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, like, tell me about that. How how was it growing up with a father like that? And how was it growing up as a Syrian, as an Assyrian in Syria itself? Obviously, to me, until I saw my dad in the in 1990, basically running for a parliament, back then... I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know the importance of that day. All I know, I was, you know, basically lost <laughs> between cities uh, when, you know, the campaign was happening and random people, all of our community, just volunteering, doing everything they can, donating, whether it's money or volunteering they, their time or bringing their own cars to move people and, you know, uh, basically run the campaign properly. And as a kid, I was just lost in that whole amazing thing that was happening and I couldn't even explain. Like you see me, for example, one day I, I am in Tultal. Next day I am in Derik. The following day, and we're sleeping over like our community's people, like people from our community that we don't even know who they are. And obviously my mom, my dad, they're all, they were all busy. So we have so many people taking care of us, you know, making sure we're uh, like we're safe and we have uh, we've, we've been taken care of, food and everything. But all to me that was just fun. It was something great experience. I didn't know the importance of that until uh, until maybe 10 years passed and knowing the situation and, and seeing how hard it is and how special it was that moment when my dad, uh, Bashir Saadi, uh, basically won in the parliament. And then I realized he was the first Assyrian, like he won in the parliament while being tied to some political party because there were some Christians, Assyrians, Suryoye uh, who were part of the parliaments year after year but those would be either independent tied to the Ba'ath party or basically part of the Ba'ath party so there was no any ethnic 
nationalistic person that is tied to some political organization that won ever, not till now. Thanks to all the people, all the organizations, the church, communities all over Gozerto, they did like something that was that is completely historical. We will one day talk about it again and again because to me, I think that is an achievement not of my dad. This is an achievement of people. This is something we can, you know, we can be very proud of. Thinking about these political activities and thinking about all this preservation of culture, how did you celebrate or preserve your culture back then? How did you celebrate Hanison? Tell me a little bit about the positive, beautiful times you remember before the war. Like how was traveling within Syria and the accessibility and yeah, who were really the driving force for keeping our identity? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you don't realize what you have until you lose it. A lot of times that's what it happens. Uh, we really had, uh, you know, decent life here. Things were improving. Uh, commute within Syria was so easy. Transportation was becoming very easy, very affordable for people. The community here was growing in Gozerto, at least. More businesses, more serious businesses were opening. Colleges for the first time were opening in Gozerto, which means education and having people stay the most development was in West Syria and yeah. we are in East North Syria. Right. Usually our students after college, uh, after high school, they go to college either in Aleppo, Damascus, Latakia, which are all in the West. And after that, obviously, the more you like you stay away from your land, the less connection you have with it. So a lot of them, they were losing some of that connection because they're, they're moving away from their own town and their own community, direct community. So by opening those uh, universities uh, and colleges, it, it opened up so many opportunities for people to afford it more and to stay uh, closer to their land, to their family, to their community. And we saw great growth in the last years before the war. Hanison. Hanison. Yeah, those are days to remember. Uh, Hanison, it was the day we actually were waiting for the whole year. There's nothing that was close to Hanison, like not it, New Year's. Describe it, like how, how, because I heard it from some people, like buses came from Aleppo in the same day and they left the same day. And now it's such a headache to travel actually to, to uh, Aleppo. So describe, right. you wake up in the morning of Hanison. What, what are you doing? How is that day? Let me take you one step back, like the night before the Hanison as kids. We would just go wait in the window, just looking up the sky and hope and pray, please God, don't make, let it rain tomorrow. You know, because obviously Hanis and all those uh, like festivals that we were doing, they're like a picnic, huge picnic with like camping almost. We go and camp the whole day. So if it rains, obviously it ruins your camping and a lot of people won't go and a lot of people won't enjoy their time. So that's the first thing we do. If God uh, listens to us and hears us and, you know, makes it a good verse of April, then 
uh, we notice, we see that a lot of people coming from Aleppo, Damascus, those people are usually students who cannot afford, you know, leaving their town in Aleppo, whatever, for college, for school. So what they do, they just come one night, a night before, come in the morning and leave the same day of Havnis and go back to their town, which is like so Aleppo they, or Damascus. They travel across the country to attend the Havnisan in Gozerto yeah. and then leave the same. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, and it, it was that special. It's How many day, hours of traveling is that? From uh, Aleppo is about five to six hours. From Damascus is about nine hours. Wow. Yeah. That is... Like one road. The definition one. of... Commitment. Yeah, it was really a fun day. Uh, Hamnis and everyone was waiting for it. It ignited the nationality in people. People who di really didn't care about who they are, what their nation is, what their nationality or identity is. People who only cared about going to school or going to church or going to their town. They started thinking outside of the box. They're looking into this Habnisan and see people from different churches, from different towns, and different speaking different dialects, Eastern or Western or whatever it is, all celebrating one event without any boundaries, without any like limitations. And uh, I think that is something so memorable to anyone who attended Habnisan in those days. I recently visited with you Habnison uh, in Iraq, Nohadra. Yeah. So there's a huge difference from back in the day, the Habnison and the one now that is celebrated in Iraq. And who celebrated actually first? When did the celebration really started in, I mean, obviously in the history we mm -hmm. celebrated, but gathering Surrey and then doing this thing what we do today? Yeah. I think in Syria, I believe it started in Syria and uh, maybe the second or third year also in Iraq, as far as I know. Uh, and the idea was and the hosting of this whole event was uh, in Syria was in Takasto, Takasto Thureto Demokratito, the ADO. The Assyrian Democratic Organization. Correct. ADO, Assyrian Democratic Organization. Uh, they started with this actually. The, uh, the, the ADO was the first Assyrian political organization or party in the world. This is basically the, the oldest living Assyrian political organization. Be before Zaw'a in Iraq? Correct. Wow. And I think a couple of years or a few years before. S so obviously they inspired each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're almost, uh, that, that's why a lot of people compare them or relate them to each other because they almost started around the same time. Okay. Uh, Takasto or Takasta uh, started in 1957. But what was really interesting about ADO, it really started not just political. It was political, but was really more about how to revive the nationalistic feelings and ideas and spreading awareness about nationality and identity and strengthening the language among our people. And that's, that was their focus. Like there were so many musical things they've done, like the Yelda group, if you know, uh, the Yelda band, uh, I think one of the oldest bands we have, and it was really directed and managed by, uh, you know, by Mtakasto. 
And uh, they did so many works on so many different fields like that. Uh, music, language, uh, events, Habnisen. And I think that made a huge difference in the future of, the, of that generation, which is right now us. Wow. Akat, uh, we have a lot of Eastern um, Syrians listening to the podcast. So I think a lot of people are curious about Khabur. Obviously, our people uh, from Iraq, they know Khabur the most because, you know, as I mentioned, after the Simele massacre that happened in Iraq, those people, uh, the Eastern Assyrians from different villages came and, and lived in the camps in Khabur. Uh, that's why they call them Kampe, to mean villages or Matwate. They even refer to them as Kampe because when they came, they put them in camps. And those camps turned into 35 plus villages that, uh, you know, Eastern Assyrians were living in for so many years. I want to know about the times uh, of Syria before war, like how much it changed. But can you tell me first about Khabur? Because it's so recently yeah. right now what happened to Khabur. Mm -hmm. So you visited Khabur before ISIS came. Can you just explain a little bit how... Khabur was before that and how it is now sometimes if you remember what you had you know you you stop and probably tear up because Khabur was so special like in our area you probably seen it now it's so dry it's so a uh, harsh area you know it's almost like desert like but on the contrary Khabur was completely different all those 30 plus villages we had in Khabur were around the river. And our people there really took care of it, doing plantation, doing fruits. They planted fruits. They had amazing rivers. They had amazing, you know, just houses, clean houses. It was really for us, we looked at it as paradise. <laughs> you know, wow. like we were waiting for the weekend for our parents to take us there you know maybe swim in the river a little bit and then you know go uh, get some fruits and visit our friends our mukhtar is there <laughs> so yeah that was uh, very special uh, but also as i mentioned earlier what made khabar even more special is the new like the new dialect that was introducing to the area which is the eastern surat dialects and all its variation so that enriched the area with something that is you know that belongs to the area but was reintroduced the dances the all the tens different types of dances we have you know the khigga and shekhani and all these uh, you know how like all these villages the 30 plus villages each village was some millet so some were that were Tiarai and they had their own kind of dialect or their own dances or their own probably slightly different food. And then you have Tchumnai and you have uh, Gunduknai and you have all these different groups of people that all live again very close to each other. So all of a sudden, like one of the greatest group dances like Khushaba, for example, the Khushaba group was so famous until now they, they do dance, maybe I think in Australia, uh, it was from Khabur. And uh, we actually, Westerners, learned so many types of dances from the, all these villages. Because we hadn't that much in Turabdin. Well, correct. No, we didn't have so many. 
we had like few of them and uh, as you know in Torah Abdin to certain point singing in your language wasn't per, uh, permitted so meaning the singing was limited to the church correct it's, see singing and music in church was so advanced so beautiful so great but the like common singing in parties or in events was was not even allowed it was uh, considered like something unholy to do something you know against the church something unspiritual because they looked at the language as being like a holy language so you can't just go use that language for singing and dancing so for so long and therefore because of that the dances we had they were just ones we have in the area so from Khabur we learned a lot from the Eastern Assyrians and we kind of mixed our type of dances with their type of dances and now you have Ruha, you have Barmaya, you have so many other dance groups uh, like Ornina dance group now of Takasta. We really advanced on that cult on cultural dances and performances. But that was all before Daesh. Correct. Yep. And when you go now to Khabur, what do you see? I think you're going next week to see it. You probably won't see much. Uh, you will see, unfortunately, destroyed villages, destroyed churches. Like the Talnasri church is very special to us because my dad is the one who architected and managed the whole building of that church in Talnasri. And Dash uh, basically demolished it uh, through bombings and explosives. You you would only see those. Uh, m mainly, you will see those uh, empty villages. No people, not many people in those villages. Uh, our community went to Tiltamar, which is like the bigger city uh, of uh, Khabur. Uh, and it's more, uh, has more services and stuff. So it's easier for them to live. Uh, but still... The problem is the number. Their number is very low. So, Akat, you don't think there's any hope for Khabur? I think there's always hope. And I think people make hope. And we have many people in Khabur now who do their best, do everything they can to revive it, to stay in it, to last as long as they can and have passion toward their you know goals and objectives and what they want to reach you see like even though the number of people in Khabur is so low you have you still have no Ture, which is like a small uh, police forces which which are all Assyrians protecting all these villages and we still have that senior home for elderly people we have several people actually staying in their own village on their own like just like a small family like family of Abu Shem Yas Antar staying in his village planting all those empty lands and making good money with it reliving the past right now during war uh, profiting encouraging people to come and plant their their land to show them that there is hope. Look, I stayed and I benefited. Look, I stayed and now look, it's Khabur is beautiful again. Look at all this plantation we we have. So as long as people don't give up, we have hope. It's really up to us and up to people. That sounds very beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So hearing the times of Khabur, I want to come back to the rest of Syria and Qamishli. How much did it change now being still in the war? 
and like really the people, the youth and the jobs and the salaries, since a lot of people migrated, like jobs changed, salaries changed. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and compare? Sure. Comparison is striking uh, when you talk about just seven, eight years ago and now. Like the currency value, for example, dropped to 10%. So it actually dropped in value to 10%. So, for example, the dollar used to be maximum 50 liras. Now it's 570 liras. And what, what does it mean? For example, how much did a teacher earn before war and how much do they earn now? What is funny is the salary didn't change much. So who you it raised a little bit, you would say, oh, good. So it actually even went up. Yeah. Uh, correct. But it went up in Syrian pounds. So, for example, a teacher on average was, I think, 10, 12,000 uh, liras, which meant back then about 200, 240 dollars a month, which wasn't bad at all. Yeah. It's something you can live depending on that money. Now, the teacher makes about 25,000 Syrian, Syrian pounds, which is in dollars, it's about less than $46. He earns that in a month. In a month. And so, how can they survive? How can they, they have to feed their families with that money? They have to pay their car, their rent, their everything. That's not they, they can't survive depending on their salary. Uh, before two people, let's say a husband and wife, they both work, they get each one on average $250. Now that's $500 in the household. And that's good money. They can live, they can go out and spend and enjoy their time. That's $500. Not, it's good money. Now, two people working makes them about, if, if they just depend on their salary, just $100 or $150 which isn't enough for food, just food without any other payments. So all what people have done either left the country or they are eating up from their savings or they've been working three to four different jobs in the same day. Like they have multiple part-time jobs or full-time job with two part-time jobs after. Just like people adapted but become be, like living became so hard, so difficult, so challenging. I heard from friends in Germany that whenever they visited Qamishli, they were full of joy. They talked about all these parties and all these celebrations and really like the great hol summer holiday in Qamishli. So now being in war, how much did the day-to-day -day life change in Qamishli? And roughly how many Assyrians are left in Qamishli? Right now in, in, in Gozerto, in, in general, in Gozerto, meaning Qamishli, Hasake, Derik, and all these areas where our people live, uh, northeast of Syria, before the war, right before the war, it, uh, the statistics tell us it's 100 we used to have 135,000 uh, Suryoi Assyrians. 135,000. Now, after the war, which is eight years later, we are at 38,000. That is less than 50%. Yes. 
that's way less than 50%. And the, what's even worse than this number is the youth. Most of the youth left. If like 60-70% uh, of the population left, the youth may be 90% of the youth or 95% of the youth, meaning students and teenagers and people in their 20s, they just left the country. And I think it's a misconception of people in the West that uh, we think, oh, they just left, you know, it's war and they want a better life in uh, Germany, in Europe or somewhere. So they just left for a better life. There are other reasons too. Can you can you state those reasons? Sure. Uh, obviously, uh, us humans always look for stability and always look for like secured future, which is probably there's nothing called secured future, but as secured as possible. So, in in their back and the back of their mind, they always look at Europe and America and the West, you know, Western countries as a safe place to live, place of opportunities, schools, money, uh, financial stability, and all that. However, in addition to all of that, there is also another layer of complexity, which is you add to it now, economics, as I explained earlier. You, ha you add to it the security, like safety meaning. Like during only my stay, there were so many things that, you know, was so life-threatening that happened to me. This is just me as an example. Can you, can you tell us an example? Sure. An incident that I remember, for example, was the first year I, I was uh, just enjoying my time uh, with my brother-in-law and, uh, you know, just going to a restaurant, uh, seeing people walking the streets, enjoying their time. And back then I was to my brother-in-law and, and telling him, oh, look how people are how much they're enjoying their time and I don't know why people leave this country and you know we're talking about migration and why people migrate and we were actually asking our, ourselves each other like how this doesn't make sense why do people leave and then I get a phone call from my friends telling me why don't you come you know we're we're gonna sit in a different restaurant come over it was called Miami restaurant is like an Assyrian restaurant. that's an Assyrian restaurant and they uh, called me, invited me, come over with us. We're going to have fun. We're, we want to see you. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm tied up with the family. My brother, I'm with my brother-in-law. We're going to see my nieces, my little, two little nieces. So I didn't go with them. I apologized. Went home, basically. On the way there, we hear, you know, just huge sounds of bombs. Like two, two I think, or three, like consecutive uh, sounds of you know bombing wow. boom boom like twice like that two three times and we thought every time we hear something like that we would think it's from turkey you know as you know turkey is close by and see it and see when it's five just, minutes just five minutes walk yeah you know so we would think oh it's just turkey you know and then we reach home and we just get phone calls non-stop and answer them that people are asking oh, where are you are you guys safe and then we realize two restaurants, Assyrian Christian restaurants, were bombed the same time. They're like it was two days prior to New Year's. Wow! Um, was and, that a planned planned incident? Like it was not just a random pick. It, um, like this sounds like a stra strategic. Yeah, it was uh, attack on Assyrians. It was definitely, and specifically Christians. 
more about it's more than nationalities also about Christians yeah there were um, actually people who came inside of those uh, restaurants carrying some explosives they left their bag and they left and they just remotely exploded those two restaurants and all of the people most of the people who died were surai uh, and few of them uh, were my friends and yeah and, and this is just an example and thankfully to me at least nothing happened but there's so many other incidents where you know obviously the scarce people like if things like this happen youth uh, you know are lost and we lose our youth our like we're not a huge community where we can take such a blow things like this affect us a lot so that's definitely an, another huge reason why people leave another one is really tied to it which is military service like in northeast of syria right now we have two you could you can think of it as two governments governing you you have the you know the official government of syria and you have the self administration uh, led by kurds yeah led by kurds uh ypk party I mean, I spent two two months now in Qamishli and I think it's the first time that I witnessed that there are checkpoints and different militaries within the city. Like I experienced that in Iraq, going from yeah. city to city, checkpoint to checkpoint. That's like normal. Yeah. But it's in the city that one street is organized um, by the Kurds. Mm -hmm. Then the next street is the Sotoro of the um Suryoy of the Assyrians then that are with the government then the mm -hmm. other street is with the Suryoy Sotoro that is not with the government that it's actually with the Kurds and then there is the governmental right so the military within the city there is probably also causing problems for the citizens and that's why also a lot of people left right and as I said, there are two governments here, two controlling uh, governments in the same area. So which means, what, what does that mean? Like you'd say, okay, so what? Let, that, let them be three. The problem with that is, like, for example, if I need to serve the army, right? Well, there are two governments. You can think about, about it as two different countries. So which government should I serve? Hmm. I would say, okay, well, serve with one of them. I'm sure the others will forgive you because you just served on the other side. Well, it's not a sure thing. If you serve here and you're even done and released after a year or two years or three years, the other government could catch you, arrest you and serve with them also for a few years or a few months or whatever it is. No, a few years. But isn't there a rule like in the... I know that in the Syrian military, where if you're the only boy in the family, uh, you don't have to serve because you are the only provider for the family. And, and that, if you have a brother, one of those will serve. Doesn't that apply to the Kurds? And isn't the military, isn't like you will get a paper and the Kurds will see, oh, she, that person already served the military, so... Yeah, uh, if you are called Wahid, Wahido, meaning you're the only son in the family, there is a, a law for, for both governments, the self-administration and the government, the official government of Syria, where you don't have to serve the army. So and that's why you probably are here for two months. You've seen most of the young guys who are still here are just probably, you know, like singles, wahido. 
Meaning they don't have uh, brothers, other yeah, brothers. Yeah, like the girls are com- <laughs> the girls are complaining. There are no boys left in Hamishli yeah, exactly. that they can date. So that's now. It's uh, if you say I'm I'm wahido, then you are actually this is a good thing. You can people will look up to you. Then oh, then you're gonna stay here. You don't have to run away and escape the country. Wow, this this Syrian war is so complex, Akka. Yeah, um, it is. But why why is it so difficult to find the bad guy and the good guy? Since our own people are so extremely divided when it comes to the politics. Even in my own family, like one of the relatives say this and the other says that. So how I see it is you can either be with the government, which is bad, or be with the opposition, which doesn't necessarily mean that you are with the self-administration of the Kurds. It sounds a bit like Iraq shortly after Saddam. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, but to answer your question about why are our people uh, split in this topic, I think I think because really we don't know what's going to happen. And it's been eight years now, and it was true. Nobody knows what what was happening and what will be happening. And we're now after eight years, and we're still asking ourselves, okay, hold on, what just happened? Where are we? Who's the government? Are we done with the war? Is there still civil war? Is this a real war? Like uh, World War Three, for example. It's so confusing what's happening in Syria that is causing our people to be confused too. Some people see the Ba'ath and being part of the uh, government of Bashar al-Assad is the safer route. And because the, they also remember their path. Like you can't blame them because they say, well, we had can't. such a good yeah. life. Yeah, you cannot blame them because it did give them some security. There was some security in Syria of safety. You can you can go to your church freely. You can go to your parties freely, swimming pools. It was very safe. It was everything except being involved in politics. Correct. That's uh, anything with politics is a different story. Now... Everything aside, if you live just normal, you don't care about politics, you just want work, business, mostly you were right, you were you were feeling okay, you're feeling good. But again, it's not just politics too, because also the law in Syria wasn't strong. You cannot always protect yourself by law. You know, I lived in America, you live in Germany, in Europe, you know, the law is always behind you, protecting you. In Syria, that was that is not the case all the time. It's not like zero law. No, there are there are laws. Or there were laws, but they were not strong enough. They're not trustworthy enough. Where you feel always safe from everything. You know, you always have that sense something could happen. Uh, everything looks great, but something could happen. Also, the opposition, with all its forces and variations, it hasn't showed and proved itself to be a really good pathway for securing future good future with freedom with democracy with equal rights and everything it did not so far prove itself that it can secure these things these things that's why a lot of people are hesitant to be in the opposition as well and also there are the third and fourth options like the self-administration that we still don't know is it really opposition is it with the government is it in the middle And there are other layers in between that still people pick their route. Some people are very pro-Assad, pro-government, pro-being, you know, under the Ba'ath party. 
and some the completely opposite they see that they see that is not enough it hasn't protected us those years so we want to go to a different route and then you have those in the middle in the the Kurds. Sel- the Kurds the self administration feeling that this is another path of securing a, a decent life under different shape of government but it slowly becomes the self administration of the Kurds also slowly becomes like a different kind of oppression mm-hmm. and how i see it they also play with a lot of dirty tricks like mm-hmm. um establishing the syriac language right everywhere in the ads in the in the signs of every store they really promote having arabic kurdish and syriac um as the three languages mm-hmm. but then when it comes to embracing your ethnic identity and embracing about like rights then yeah. then there's a different kind of dealing with yeah. the minority yeah it's it's also confusing even that route like you see some positive things like you say oh wow the, the self administration short period of time they proved a lot of things you know whether it's certain things like rules and traffic and different rules uh, the bribes women rights women rights less bribes less meaning less corruption on one side more respect to the ethnic groups being nationalistic groups more respect to the political organizations you you have the freedom to open up political parties and organizations there is no oppression on that much before you couldn't do that you could you couldn't have a political party you you know you won't give you a license to do that what happened with Syria or Syrians that got involved in politics and they got caught they just got caught and before you mean yeah yeah they they would just get caught they get arrested interrogated maybe tortured to certain degree that was how uh, was happening on at least for us too like in in 1987 my dad and his and his group of from Tak in Takasta were arrested in 1987 they were released I, i don't know if it was the end of the year but it was in 1987 they were released after three and a half months of heavy 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 torture so back then that happened Last now month. you have every week event in the hodro in the front right. ado which i'm visiting so now you can do that freely yeah but also even during the bath and during before uh, before the uh, self administration in pakistan other org- other parties continued to work but they would just work more carefully under more pressure yeah. or undercover for example like even though i mentioned 87 they were arrested and tortured in the 90 i just mentioned also my dad who was in the in takasto winning a seat in the parliament with the free elections so it's it, the thing is it's never stable sometimes there's that oppression sometimes they let let it go for some time for whatever reason and then they get back to you and oppress you or and the self administration it's they're a little bit more more clear when it comes to rules that they allow political parties to open officially and register officially however you see oppression on the other side like you see things like enforcing their whether their language the kurdish language on some on our schools or their curriculum kind of giving us what we want with the syriac language but to really fulfill their agenda 
So they're really, it's, it's really un, also very confusing to people. They see like good thing here and then right beside it, they see the bad thing that is affecting them. The military service of self-administration caused maybe more than 50% of our youth to leave the country. Just wow. that. Because a lot of people already finished, you know, military service. and They don't want to be involved in a world that is not theirs. And we're a small community. If we lose 10 people, 10 guys, just 10, this is a huge hit for us. We're not like in millions here. As I mentioned, in our peak, we were 135,000. So now with, after eight years of just war, became 38. So Akkad, closing a little bit the chapter of Syria right now, you actually went abroad to the U.S. Uh, which year was that and why did you move to the U.S.? Yeah, I cannot make up the excuse of self-administration and those things because they didn't exist then. <laughs> no, I actually uh, left the country for uh, school. I went first in 2000, year 2000, I went to Armenia for a year and a half. So that was all before war. You yeah, left before completely. war. Yeah, before war. And it was the probably after 2000, it was the best time in Syria. Things were, uh, you know, growing and th prospering and people were living better and better year by year. So I went to Armenia in 2000, year of 2000, I reached, and then in 2002, I went to America, I got accepted into a college there, uh, Northeastern University in Chicago. I finished four years of college in computer science, mm -hmm. and then I found a job, worked for six months, and then I continued my work, but I started my master's after that as well in administration of information systems. And yeah, and continued staying there for a long time. Was that a huge difference for you, like going from Syria to America, studying there? Was that very difficult for you? How was And how was your studying life? Uh, it was actually very, very different to me. And I think it started from Armenia. It was like a turning point in my career and my in myself, actually, as a person. And it continued in America, in Chicago is to me when I was here in Syria, our education system, like uh, set up with, its, with the tough curriculum it has, it really frustrates a lot of people because it, it depends, it's so much about being strong in literature stuff and memorization and, you know, just really studying hard versus the analytic part and the scientific part. So you either have to be very good with both of them or you'll be a failed student. So to me, I was really good in math and in scientific uh, topics. But when it came to memorization, probably my friends know and you know that <laughs> you know, not so not the strongest suit. I guess that he was not the brightest student. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. And, and when I finished my high school, I barely passed my high school and got my degree. It's not an easy thing to get a degree in a high school degree here, but still I didn't get any grades to get any, any good college. So when I went to Armenia, to me I was considered, oh, this is one kid, not so smart student. And uh, I went to Armenia and I studied computer engineering and I love computers and I love math and I love anything with you know analytics. So all of a sudden, uh, my dad here in uh, in Syria was hearing 
uh, rumors about me. Oh, you're smart student, you're smart <laughs> child. And he would question himself. Uh, are they talking about Sargon, my other brother, who's smart actually? <laughs> so, um, and then they were saying, no, no, Akkad, the one in Armenia, you know, our friend's friend or our son's friend. So that's when I really realized that I can be good in school. I can succeed in life. Um, and that started from Armenia. And when I went to in Chicago in America, like I knew I was good in computers or in math or in studying that field. And I was a student throughout college. And that changed my life, I think. You know, it gave me confidence. I knew I can get a good job. Uh, I can learn. I can be a successful man. And how did you continue in Chicago being involved in your community, in your church? And just like how did you kept your identity there? So obviously when you go, you're learning the language and there's that language barrier. It, it took me four or five years. I was really away from anything. I was involved in church. I wasn't involved in, you know, any Assyrian uh, groups or Assyrian community or events or whatever. After finishing my college, uh, my computer science, I started being more involved. Started with church, Syriac Orthodox Church. You know, we did... Uh, we trained the kids or the youth there for uh, folk dances, you know, Assyrian folk dances. We taught them for the first time, a generation that was born in Chicago, how to dance, how to even we had Suryo uh, lessons. So we, my involvement started in church first. And then I went to Metwa Atoraya, uh, the uh, ANCI, Assyrian National Council of Illinois. And I was part of that for two years. And I, I worked on the cultural side. I worked with them Takasta and the side political organization, but in the educational section or committee that is also in Chicago. So my involvement was always either church and then sometimes in the political organization and then, but always in the educational and cultural side. I'm always, I'm very intrigued in that area. And there you actually also learned Maran Hoyo. Yes. In the Surah, the uh, Eastern dialect. It's not really common for an Easterner to speak uh, Syria, uh, Surah, the Western dialect, and vice versa. Correct. Yeah, I, this this is the funny thing. In in Surya, in Qamishli or Hasake, I didn't learn Surah, the Eastern dialect. I learned it when I went to Chicago, where I actually met a lot of Easterners, more than Westerners. So I learned the dialect from my friends, and obviously I love the language, so I was... I was really intrigued into learning it and I think it took me a couple of months to speak it. It's not hard when you know one dialect, it's same language, it's just a little bit, some differences. So I encourage people to actually learn all of our dialects. You yeah, know. you have the, if you have the basis, basics of one dialect, you can actually learn another Quickly, way. yep. And Akkad, what is the best thing that you remember from your time back in Chicago? Obviously, we had a lot of memories in every organization, every team I worked with, any company that I worked for. You know, each one has its own joyful moments. But something that is dear to me because it kind of shaped who I am and what I what I really wanted to do in life 
back in 2011, I remember I was, and even before, I was doing any chance I get as I am a computer programmer, I would actually make something Assyrian. For example, <laughs> like everyone <laughs> in basically. school, the yeah. first image you will draw in art school, in art class, it will be something about Mesopotamia. Exactly. So to me, like I, I was in, intrigued in video gaming. Uh, I had a couple like video gaming courses and my master's degree was in a video game. And guess what I called the video game? Assyria. Close. It was called Assyrians Under Attack. Oh, wow. And it was a third so person could... shooter. Uh, you know, the guy with the sword protecting uh, Assyria and actually going from Nineveh to Babylon to ask for a backup, you know. Which so. year was that? <laughs> That's 2009. So that was probably, it looks like a cheap version of PlayStation 1 <laughs> games. <laughs> actually, it still looks good. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, no, I did have also before that, like the 2D version, you know, it kind of moved up. So the funny thing is the first time I showed the game, the one for my master's degree, it was called Assyrians Under Attack 3. So people were asking me, where the heck are the 1 and 2? <laughs> So, yeah, and, and kind of that interest continued, and I had a really gr great group of friends in Chicago. In 2011, I created my own business company called Canosoft. I was planning to work on it to create you know, side projects, to take side projects and such. And I, parallel with that, with my friends, we did an organization called Renew. And in Renio, the idea was, hey, like we are great people, we're great, like we have a goal, we want to protect our identity, our, our language, and we have technical skills and a lot of experience, especially me, I have in the technical world, you know, in programming and IT world. So what we did, we did an organization where we can use those skills that we have to create products to preserve the language. And I started there with those friends in this in Renew organization and worked for a couple of years, few years actually. Uh, we produced many games and programmed many cool things for the language. And then in 2015, to me really, you, you asked me earlier, why did I travel or went to America? Yeah. To me it was for school. So in my head and my heart, I never felt I would be living in abroad. I always said I'm going to be living in the homeland. So even though 13, 14 years passed, 14 years passed to uh, this dream and this idea of me living in the homeland, it really didn't die. Wow. So in 2015, I made the decision that I finished school. My brother finished school. I finished my master's. My brother is on his own, you know, pursuing his own career. So... It was a perfect time for me to make the decision, either stay in the U.S. or do what I've always dreamt of, which is going back to the homeland and doing some work business or work with the community there. And that's what, what I did in 2015. You moved back to Syria in 2015. Was that actually hard to believe for people? Why? Because so often people in the Middle East look to Western countries as the final destination. And once they're there, everything will be perfect. And then here you go, coming back to Syria. What were some reactions you got from people both in the US and Syria? So first, obviously, it was very hard for me to make the decision. Uh, it was the 
you had to challenge your brain, your mental state. You had to challenge your, like your heart, your feelings, your emotions. You had to balance all that to make yes. such a decision. So it was really hard for me. But once I made it, really no one else, whatever people said, it really didn't matter to me. Some obviously were supportive. They were surprised, but they were very supportive. Like they felt this is a, a big thing to do, great step to take. And but maybe I would be honest. Most people thought I'm crazy. <laughs> and your parents? <laughs> My parents were supportive. Were definitely supportive. Uh, they were not. They did not try to impact my decision at all. But I cannot lie and say they were not happy to see me and coming to their home, to homeland and their city. And your brother Sargon is still in the U.S. though. So do you find life between the two of you now very different? Life is very different around us, but when we talk, we're just that two brothers that are still living in the same uh, room in Chicago. Uh, we lived together for seven years in Chicago in That's the same, sweet. basically almost the same room. We had another room, but we really didn't care too much about that. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, what were the first difficulties that you had moving back to Syria within war? So it was actually still war. Yeah, first you question yourself, as I said, that starts from you, from within. But once I, you know, I set my mentality that this is it, this is the decision I made, uh, it was about just either answering people logically why you did what you did and decided this decision. The second one is just, or just ignore them. And tell you the truth, maybe mostly I did the ignoring part more than explanation because it's hard to explain how you feel and why you made such a decision. Because technically, if you think logically, it wasn't logical. And it isn't logical leaving a country with so much to, so much to give you. You know, uh, I had a great career, a great job. I have secured condo, apartment, living there. I have a car. I have everything I need, security, life insurance, any kind of insurance you need. You know, especially in the IT world, it's very, it secures your life there. Yes, you, you know? earn a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> you earn good money. So obviously with that, it's a huge jump in Syria where it's time of war and also no jobs. Yeah. Like I came here, there's no job of IT. I cannot find, especially in London, you know, there are no companies hiring you for programming stuff. So if there's no job and the crisis... You came back to Syria. What did you do? Yeah, I uh, when I wanted to come to Syria and when I made that decision of coming, I didn't want just to come without a plan. So my plan was to do something, as I mentioned, either an organization or a company. And I always had in mind that I want everyone around me to be part of the community. Like, you know, a company where they're all Assyrians, an organization where everyone around me is from Qamishli and from the area, the area speaking the language. And that was a dream I always had, you know, to provide that kind of opportunity to people and bring the experience and enrich, you know, your community with that. Yes. And that's what I did. Uh, first, I did it as part of the Rini organization. And we did that uh, and we built a team like for over eight people. They did programming, they did language, they did design, animation, so many technical, new, modern things. We taught them to build this team. 
And they, we worked till end of 2016. And then uh, Renio couldn't continue working in Syria. So now we're back to another tough decision that I had to make, you know. I was, uh, again, making decision. Do I now uh, stop what we built? And, you know, I sacrificed so much to do, uh, which is building the team, uh, doing some great things for the community, local community and for everyone abroad. So the decision was after some tough thinking and again, again, evaluating your, your, your logic and your emotions. And your financials uh, and so your many future things. and yes. your time. Exactly. So we made the decision that no, we will continue. And that's why we built a new organization called Bitcano. Bitcano is the current organization that you're in. Can you tell me how and who's directing Bitcano? What is Bitcano? Sure. As a name, Bitcano, it's an Akkadian word, Akkadian name. Uh, Bit, just like in Aramaic, is house, Beto, Beta. And Kano is from Kiana, Kiono, which is forming. So it's the house of creation. You, you form things. And what we form, what we create, is the, uh, those products that builds a foundation, a really strong foundation of language to be an educational system for kids and hopefully to the academic level as well at some point. And we can achieve all that by using those new modern tools, you know, using our programming skills, using our uh, multimedia skills, whether it's design, graphic design, animation, uh, motion graphic, all those new technologies that are available to us, uh, we can utilize all those to achieve uh, the goal of preserving the language. And who's directing it? Bitcano has a board of directors and the board of directors, we have two of them in Chicago, originally from Iraq, Ramina and Marganita Samuel. And we have Sargon Sadi, who's my brother in, uh, in LA, Los Angeles. And we have Jessica Lahdo in uh, Germany. And uh, I am also part of the board of directors. And currently I am the president of this board. And you are all trying to preserve the Syriac language through songs and cartoons and more. And In Betcano, we built an incredible center that has over 13 em employees and members working together on producing like incredible pr products. For example, we create like video games, we make cartoon, uh, original cartoon series, we make songs, um, e either remake of international songs in our language, both in Surat and Surait, uh, or just brand new melodies and, uh, you know, more authentic, you know, lyrics and melodies for our songs. We do also modern books. We use apps and new tools that go well with the books so we can introduce something really cool for our people. I think our kids are really bored of the dry books and just text, text, text all over. Yeah. So we're trying, it's not like a way to replace the uh, educational curriculum, like the official curriculum of schools. It is about supplements. We're supplying them up, adding new tools for them that will be fun and at the same time be very educational, very beneficial for, uh, for them. But is it all about children content? 
Uh, no, I mean, the goal of Betkano isn't only uh, teaching the children the language, it's about teaching and spreading the awareness about the language, right? And strengthening the foundation of the this language in the new modern world, in new era. So, however, the children are so important and so essential that we are putting so much effort for the children. However, we also have, let's say, comic book that is coming up so soon, uh, maybe in the next few months, that will be targeting teenagers. We have uh, academic projects. For example, soon uh, you will see next month, hopefully, uh, an, a release of an app called Knuth app for new modern Syriac terms. We have different types of apps that target different age groups and different categories. For example, we have an app coming soon called Dargushti, that would be uh, the easier way to find a name for your child. Like it's a collection, oh, a lexicon amazing. of books for kids' names, baby names. So a pregnant woman can just look at it and find a new name for their child. Yeah. That's amazing. Pregnant woman or her husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, my question is, we have several organizations like that in the world, like in Sweden, in the US and in Germany. So why did we need another organization like that? What makes Bitcano different from those? Really, it's hope. For us, Bitcano is not just an organization that is creating material in Syriac or in our colloquial dialect, Sorite and Surith, which can be achievable anywhere else. But we see so many things that Betcano is doing and ha was able to do, which is mainly the first thing is hope, giving hope to people. Because remember, we actually built this organization in the homeland and we built this organization in time of war where it's, it's unstable. As we talked, as we mentioned, it's unstable more both financially, uh, economically, Uh, safety, everything is just at risk. So by building this organization and continuing now for over years with this team that we built really is giving hope to people that you can still stay and succeed in the homeland regardless how tough it is. You can still challenge all the basic logic that people really go to when they're in pressure or in stress. Like right away, the automatic thing to do is really run away, is really just go protect yourself. But but what Pitcano is doing and how we're thinking about it is it's actually building and growing and including people and give, empowering them, giving them skills and giving them education and a building co connection with other communities in the area and abroad. So all this is giving hope to people that Regardless what happens, don't think about it as you, as yourself. You can always think about it as a people, as a community, as a nation. Uh, and it's a big proof that Bitcano from being created on our own with no financial uh, funding or anything, actually people all over the world and organizations came to support us and uh, allowed us to succeed. And that's very special. Wow. So this hope that you're saying it's you really empower the people and you give them jobs so you support them financially and 
This is also reason more to stay and not migrate. Of course. And, uh, and I remember really the first, I think the first year I was here, I got at the end of the year, I think end of 2016, I received a message from my friend who was one of the, uh, our coworker, our members in, in, our, in our team. And he told me, thank you for this opportunity that you guys gave us to educate us more, to give us the skills. This was a big reason for me to stay here this year, you know, meaning in Syria, not to leave the country. So to me, that message, which was maybe two lines, made a huge difference uh, in, my, in my life, in, in how I looked into things, because I knew then what we always thought on one, what I always thought about was true. Like if you actually empower people, you give them opportunity, really build something for them, empower them financially, they, they will have less reasons to leave, less reasons to give up on everything they have here and go start from scratch, start from the beginning. So you and your friends, you built this organization and people saw that. So are, are you perceived as role model, Akkad? Recently, I get that feeling more. I think uh, obviously I, I'm not sure if I'm a role model. That's a big word. But yeah. definitely, if you just set an example and it's a successful example, uh, I'm sure people will follow. I'm sure people will like will refer to you. And it has happened recently. For example, a couple of my friends are just decided to come back after seven or eight years in Germany. And they're young people, very smart people, doctors. They decided to come and move back to Syria again in time of war, challenging everything. And to me, that was, I thought I was the only crazy man, you know. <laughs> But I looked at them and I really asked them, I'm like, how... What made you, you know, make this decision? And obviously there's a lot of common into the thinking, but it was so nice and so beautiful to hear that they mentioned my name, like trying to, to convince other people, other doubters saying, why are you telling us not to go? Well, this guy just did it. So why can't I do it? It was as simple as that. It's not about role model or some big words like that. It's just, I did it. I lasted for now three and a half, four years, and the org we built great organization with Bitcano that is growing, hiring over 13 people, and working on beautiful things that don't exist all over the world for our community. You know, with la with the songs and cartoon and apps and games and video games, right? So we are actually producing, doing something great in this horrible time time of war. So to them. Well, okay, hold on. Don't call me crazy. Look at this guy. He was able to do it. Why can't I do it? Wow. And those are friends who are way smarter than I am, by yeah. the way. So I'm sure they can be more successful than I am. That is really, that is a strong statement, Akkad. That's really beautiful to hear. Okay. So Akkad, given the fact that Syria is still in a crisis, and so far you didn't try to earn money and get financially stable again, since you've sacrificed a lot of the recent years fully for Bitcano, And what, what is Akat's next plan for life? How do you want to secure your future and where? The short answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I think now it's a time where I can, I can take that step 
uh, the last few years I couldn't because I had higher priorities, uh, which is really uh, making or allowing Bitcano to be uh, where it is now and be successful. So now it's just the time where I'm available enough to start looking for my stability uh, for a job and for a stable income. And uh, definitely I will try my best to stay here in the uh, in the homeland in Syria. Yeah. And thankfully I'm close to Iraq, which is my second home, right? So to me, it's a really great place to be. I'm going forward to look for uh, either find a job that suits me, suits my skills, or probably work on uh, like a business uh, company that would that would be more about the IT and programming and so to get back on track with my field in uh, computer systems and to use my skills into securing my future. And if you don't find any jobs or possibilities here in the homeland, what is the next step? That's a tough question. I hope I don't get to a level where I would I would myself be forced to leave the country for for that and I will I don't think I will give up easily. So there are opportunities if you look for them, you will find them. So to me, I don't want to look into the negative part with failing to reach my goal. My goal is to stick around here as much as I can if I can throughout my life, my future. I want to build it here. Uh, and I do want at some point to be the role model you mentioned, but and that doesn't come easily. So yes. it will require so much work and pray for me. I can't, we're almost finished with our interview. The governmental power is already off. <laughs> we're sweating here because there's no electricity, but we have listeners from all over the world. Do you have a message for them? The message that I have to our people all over the world is very basic. We have this language uh, that we speak that carries so much heritage, so much history, so much authenticity in us as a, as a community. And for us, we have so many things that divide us, whether it's political ties or they are a denominational church region, geographical, whatever they are, we have so many things that could break us apart. Uh, in addition to all the difficulties of war and migration, all, all the layers and layers of complexities. But we have a lot of things in common as well. And the main thing we have is the language. The language that is that survived with us thousands of years. Right now, it's at the point of extinction. And this is not me saying it. This is, you know, UNESCO. It's a fact. It's a fact. According to UNESCO, we are about killing our language. So it's really in our hand to preserve it and rescue it. Because if we preserve it and rescue it, we are pretty much rescuing ourselves, our identity. So it is now our chance, our opportunity to use this globalization, this widespread of technology and technical tools to preserve our language, to use it among us, regardless where we are, social media, with the internet, with messaging. Right now, we can connect and become closer regardless 
where we currently sit. So that's a great opportunity for us. And homeland, really the second thing I would say, language and then homeland. The homeland is also common. Like that's where we originally from, from Mesopotamia. So like if we focus on our homeland and try to give it hope, when we give our homeland hope, you know what we're doing? We're basically giving ourselves hope. Wow, Akkad, thank you so much for everything you do. And, you know, I wish you just the best of the best. And I hope that you will succeed in everything that you plan to do in order to stay here and to thrive and give more hope to the people. Thank you so much, Akkad, for this interview. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Serum Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to us. You can also help us by spreading the word about the Serum Podcast to your family and friends. Thanks and see you all next week.